Hey, pals, want to listen to the big listen on the go during your Thanksgiving travels? Well, you can with the NPR One app. NPR One is all the things, international news, local stories, as well as your favorite podcasts, including all the ones you hear on the show. You can even find stories about the world-renowned Mama Stanberg's Cranberry Relish on NPR One. So find NPR One in your app store today. Now, before we start, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to The Big Listen. It really does mean so much to us. Now, if you've liked the show for a while or you just stumbled on it, how about you leave us a review and tell us what you think? It's really helpful so that other people, attractive listeners like yourselves, can find the show. So please and thanks. Now here's the show. It's holiday season, and that means it's time for overeating and awkward conversations with that one weird uncle. And also... Road trips. Oh, hey, Nicole. What's up? Hi, Lauren. How's it going? That's Nicole Washington. She's a pal of the show, and she's kind of a road trip queen. She once drove 13 hours just to see an art exhibit. Put on your seatbelt for safety, okay? Do you want me to navigate? Nicole knows what's up when it comes to hitting the open road. First, it's all about the snacks. Uh, Cool Ranch Doritos are important. Corn Doritos are always important. Uh, Reese's Pieces are always really good. It's just, it's it's really healthy food when you're on the road trip. It's like the worst combination of food. Absolutely. Slash the best. You can only eat it in the car, though. Like, you have to behave like an adult when you're outside of the car, but you can eat total trash while you're in the car and on the road trip. It's an important part of the experience. I'm Lauren Oberen from WAMU and NPR. This is The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. Each week on The Big Listen, we introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of, and we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Now, our pal Nicole loves her road trip snacks. But you know what else is crucial for Nicole's road trips? A second most important part after snacks. Podcasts. I'm glad that I'm glad that you're a, a lady of a like mind. Absolutely. We're going to hear more from Nicole later in the show about which podcasts make the miles melt away for her. But first, we have a road trip of our own to take. Well, a podcast road trip, but still. There are so many good shows out there highlighting the unique corners of our nation and the people who live in them. From the mountains of Vermont, to the high plains of Wyoming, to the streets of Los Angeles. So this week, we're putting rubber to the road to check some of them out. We're going to start in the hollows of the Appalachian Mountains. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Contrary to popular belief, Appalachia is a diverse place with a variety of accents and dialects. Today we'll hear from folks in North Carolina. I've been in places before that uh, people say, where in the world are you from? And just ordering breakfast or something, I say, Lord have mercy, where are you from? (laughs) Kentucky. Yeah, once when I was working in that apple shop and I was working out at the front desk, I got a call and they just said, um, uh, just talk for us for a few minutes. We want to hear your voice. We need an Appalachian accent. And other places across Appalachia. Inside Appalachia is a podcast from our pals at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. The host, Jessica Lilly, is West Virginia native and has deep roots in the area. It's clear in the stories that she loves her home state and the people who live there. 
Jessica Lilly, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first you need to explain the pronunciation is not Appalachia. It's Appalachia. Can you just talk a little about how that gets screwed up? Well, we did a show and we looked into the pronunciation of it. And what we found was that if you're from Appalachia, you generally pronounce it Appalachia. Appalachia is my name. I've never heard anyone from our area, from Appalachia, call it anything other than Appalachia. When I hear someone say Appalachia or Appalachia or however they pronounce it, to me, that signifies that person is not from the Appalachian region. Yeah, that seems to be the case. It seems like outsiders always pronounce it different than we do, yes. which is pretty interesting. So, yes, I tend to favor the pronunciation that's, you know, if you come any closer or you say it wrong, I'm going to throw an apple at you. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not trying to you certainly make anybody else feel bad for saying Appalachia because they were taught growing up in schools that, you know, that's the correct way to say it. So, you know, sure. but if you come around here then, yeah, we might throw an apple. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've been we've been hearing a bunch about West Virginia and the talk always was about coal. I mean, we talked about Hillary Clinton's gaffe, you know, that coal miners were going to be put out of work. And and I feel like, you know, that is one thing that we that nationally we get that this is coal country. And that is something that you guys have delved into on your show, but it's not obviously the only thing. But I mean, you've definitely devoted many minutes to coal. Well, yeah, it's and coal is inevitably a large part of our culture and the conversations that happen here. The politics surrounding it are obviously really heavy. And, you know, a lot of the the economy and the jobs are dependent upon the coal industry, especially in West Virginia, because there has not been much efforts to diversify the economy because of the political climate, I feel. Welcome. Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly. On today's show, we're going to talk about mine safety, the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, and just how significant this case is. You see, coal mining is part of Appalachian culture that goes as deep as some of the seams snaking through the rolling hills that surround us. Unfortunately, so is the heartache that comes after losing a friend, a son, a husband, or a father to mine accidents. On the fifth day of April, 2010, death came looking for 29. One podcast that we did, or an episode that we did that looked at mine safety um, that was produced in-house pretty heavily was, what does it mean for mine safety now that Blankenship is guilty? Right. Um, We talked to um, longtime mine safety advocate and attorney, Tony Opegard out of Kentucky, um, who helped us to get a, a historical perspective on what it means for mine safety after Blankenship, Don Blankenship, the former CEO of Massey Energy, when he was indicted um, and what it meant that now that he was found guilty of mine safety. Because it was definitely a monumental day, not only in the coal fields, I feel, but also in American history, frankly, Mm -hmm. because this was 
you know, a CEO of a major company that was being convicted of violating mine safety standards and basically putting money ahead of the people. Well, it's historic in that Blankenship is the highest level coal executive ever to be indicted for criminal charges. But even though it's historic, I'm not sure how important... You know, and a lot of times on our podcast, it, it for me personally, I'm from this area, I've been here my whole life, and there's a lot of stories that I hear that I can definitely relate to. You know, my father uh, worked in the coal industry for a time. He was laid off when I was in kindergarten. Um, but later on, he worked for an electric company. The company was contracted with the coal mines, and uh, he was actually electrocuted on mine property when I was a freshman in college. So, you know, when I'm, I'm digging into this, at the age of 18, I had no idea, you know, how the system worked, what it meant with mine safety. It didn't matter to me what the political spectrum was. I just knew that, you know, I was a first-generation college student trying to get an education um, and I lost my father. So at the end of that episode, um, it, it got very real for a minute in, uh, you know, just talking about losing my father and because um, I spent a lot of time with the people and the, the widows and the victims of Upper Big Branch after that happened. I did a lot of reporting with it and I could relate to them uh, a lot. And so it was it was really challenging to keep the reporter hat on, and then the personal Appalachian, you know, Southern West Virginia coal miner's daughter who lost a loved one in a tragic accident hat on. So it was tough to keep that separated. Losing a loved one in a sudden, violent action is something you never get over. I don't believe it was my father's time to die in 2001. He should have been here to attend my graduation, walk me down the aisle, and meet his grandkids. It's a club, you know, you just don't want to be in. After meeting some of the families of the Upper Big Branch explosion, it was clear that we shared this membership. And at times, I was more of a member than a reporter. And I hope that connection made things a little easier for the families, as I know they've given me strength through the coverage. I know I had lots of questions after my dad died, and I thought maybe I could help find answers for other families. Obviously, in addition to doing stories about coal mines and things that that outsiders know or, or could place in in your region, I I like you do a lot of food stories, um, and because I, I I mean I'm just drawn to those anyway. But I think it's really interesting to understand sort of regional food trends. Is there a favorite um, food episode that you guys have done that you want to talk about? We have a regular reoccurring segment on the show called Appetite Appalachia, where we try to find restaurants or recipes that have Appalachian roots. And um, so, but the ramp story, there's lots of festivals actually going on now that happen in the springtime here as, um, in Appalachia and in West Virginia that basically there's ramps, there's beans and cornbread, and people get together and, and you know, harvest the ramps and eat them and uh, things like that, which was kind of interesting to me because, you know, being a lifelong West Virginia resident, 
I had never really called it a ramp, and I'd never heard of a ramp until I came to college. So I felt, um, you know, I learned something new, I guess, at about every episode. But it was interesting to me. We always had beans and cornbread, but ramps were something new. The air is saturated with the smell of ramps, a pungent, garlicky, peppery smell, so strong that it eclipses almost everything in the room. There's also an aroma of bacon. The ramps have been fried in bacon grease and are served with brown beans and ham. A local songwriter, John Wyatt, is playing his Richwood ramp song for the hundreds of people waiting in line for their meal. And the ramps begin to grow in the mountains. Then you'll know that it's springtime again. Ramps are the first wild foods that appear in the forest each spring. The yearly tradition of eating ramps symbolizes the renewal, hope, and vigor of spring. I feel like the lovely thing about your show is that you are, in a way, sort of debunking ideas about Appalachia because you're touching on so many things that that we wouldn't even consider, like hip-hop. My name's Shane, S-H-A-N-N-E. My last name, real name, government, is B-O-T-I-Z-A-N, but I go by Shane Gain, G-A-I-N. Shane is an Ohio Valley hip-hop artist who grew up here in the northern panhandle of West Virginia. He says he raps honestly about his life and that it hasn't been a charmed life. He remembers running through the streets of South Wheeling with a group of dozens of kids. It was actually horrible, and you find needles on the ground and see people sleeping in the alley and stuff, but... If we all stuck together, we were good to go. We, we, if we just stuck together, we were good. He says he started listening to rap music at the impressionable ages of 12 and 13. Kind of like screwed my life up listening to it, but now I'm older. I feel like I'm old. I'm almost 30, and I'm like, I am 30. I lied, but it's just going by quick. I got a 12-year-old daughter, and uh, yeah, it's just going by super-duper quick. So I need to grab onto something now. So when you meet Shane, you meet this enthusiastic, hopeful, and desperately positive person. He's a man who clearly cares a lot about his family and friends. But Shane has had run-ins with the law. He raps about societal pressures and a life surrounded by drugs because he says that's the world he was born into. His musical ambition is to give listeners goosebumps with his lyrical storytelling style. One of the main goals is to try and uh, find that common ground and introduce people to things within Appalachia that might surprise them and, you know, find uh, things that they might actually be able to relate to. And I think the hip-hop episode was a, an, you mentioned was an excellent example of that. And that one was a lot of fun to produce. I hate asking people what their favorite, if they have a favorite episode, but are there any that, you know, for you really sort of showcased what you're trying to do with the show? Yeah, I guess the one that keeps coming up and that uh, that comes to mind is what happens when strangers with cameras travel inside Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So the idea is who gets to tell Appalachia's story. I really thought it was shameful. Um, they did not have a relationship with anybody in the community, and no one knew who they were. And I don't care if they're allowed to take pictures on public property. You know, uh, people are not public property. And why do you have such strong feelings about this? Where do you think this comes from? 
of being criticized uh, throughout my whole life in uh, pictures or um, at school or at work, constant criticism um, of how I'm supposed to look, how I'm supposed to talk, uh, what's right, what's wrong, do it this way, do it that way. That's partly what it stems from. And then um, being someone who grew up living in generational poverty uh, in my family and the whole McDowell County. So for years, especially since the war on poverty was declared, people have been coming to Appalachia, taking pictures, and they're just, there's some really great stories to tell. There's interesting people, lots of different characters, uh, and we get that. We, we understand that. But when you've been kicked around and you've been laughed at and you've been a source of entertainment because of your very being, uh, there's a certain sense of sensitivity that comes with it. And a lot of times, you know, a justified sense of sensitivity. Jessica Lilly is the host of Inside Appalachia from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. You can get more info about her show at biglisten.org. Now, remember our road-tripping podcast listening pal, Nicole Washington, from the top of the show? How could you forget? For her, the best journeys are accompanied by snacks, but also podcasts. Lots of them. I did have a very memorable road trip where I listened to nothing but this podcast called The Read. And we're not talking about two or three episodes. She was driving with her friend Ben from D.C. to Texas. That's like 1,300 miles. We listened to The Read the whole time, and we started back with the very first episode, which provided us with a lot of audio. <laughs> so it was great, even especially during Dallas traffic. That was, uh, that was my saving grace. That's, that's where the trip started to break down a little bit. I had some, some problems. <laughs> okay, so tell me why The Read... Why was the read your um, your go-to on this road trip? Well, Ben had never heard it before, and I had become very recently obsessed with it. And it's just like their pop culture bits are so funny. Uh, the listener letters are absolutely hilarious. And it's just like, it's just entertaining and made the time go by. And the episodes are always an hour long. Sometimes they venture into like hour and a half, two hours. So it's like a nice chunk of time. We made progress, like three episodes and we're almost to our destination. <laughs> so how many episodes do you think that you listened to? Um, like the entire back catalog or what? I'm going to say somewhere between 30 and 40, I think. Oh my God. That's at least 50 to 60 hours or more of just one show that Nicole mainlined on her trip. That's bonkers, quite frankly. Yeah, it was fantastic. I regret nothing. I would do it all over again immediately. Well, we're going to sneak in a little break right now. But when we come back, we'll journey down south to the Big Easy to check out New Orleans at 300. You know, you realize all the people that you want to talk to, they've been dead for 200 years. <laughs> so it's like, oh, uh, I can't really call up, you know, Andrew Jackson right now. That's coming up in a bit on The Big Listen. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hey, pals, guess what? There's a new show at NPR, and it's a little different than what we've done before. It's called Radio Ambulante, and it's in Espanol. Our first ever podcast in Spanish, in fact. 
The show takes a look at Latin America and U.S. Latino communities, bringing you stories you might not otherwise hear. Punk rock in Cuba, stolen books in Colombia, junk bonds in Puerto Rico. Radio Ambulante is hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón, and it tells Latin American stories from the inside. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Oh my God, I totally faked that Spanish accent. Well done, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. This is Amanda Erickson from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And I just wanted to say I love the big listen. And I'm answering your call to phone in and tell you what I'm listening to lately. My favorite podcast that I listen to every single week is Our Hen House. I like everything they pack into that show, from the funny banter to the news and the interviews with people who are working on the front lines of what's really happening in the food world. Okay, starting us off today, we have a story from the New York Daily News. Sorry, bleeding hearts, but this cow should be killed and eaten. Yeah, this is a really loathsome column. I usually listen to Our Hen House when I'm cooking dinner, or sometimes my husband and I listen in the car if we're going on a long drive. And so that's it. Bye. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to know where podcasts have taken you recently. Call us on our old-fashioned pod line and leave a message just like the one you heard. The number is 202-885-POD1. We need you on the radio. If you have ever been to New Orleans, it's really hard not to fall in love with that place. The food, the music, the debauchery. What's up, Big Freedom? What's up, Katie Ray? But New Orleans is so much more than Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest and drunken bachelorette parties on Bourbon Street. And the podcast Tripod is all about showcasing the city's deep history, all 300 years of it. We're right now standing in front of the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel, which was constructed in the 1950s on the site that has the longest lineage in the history of the domestic slave trade here in New Orleans. This is historian and curator Erin Greenwald, who works at the Historic New Orleans Collection. She's taking me on a tour of slave auction sites in and around the French Quarter, a tour that doesn't formally exist. Lane Kaplan-Levinson from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, hosts the show. Lane, welcome to The Big Listen. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so apparently New Orleans is old. It's 300 yes. years old. <laughs> uh, why, like, why did you guys want to celebrate this... What is it, a tricentennial? Is that what we call it? Yeah, yeah. So it really, the show is really all inspired by the fact that New Orleans is celebrating its 300th birthday in 2018. And, you know, New Orleans always wants a reason to celebrate itself for any reason, (laughs) even if it needs to make it up. So the fact that it is turning 300, it's going to be a big deal. Uh And the radio station decided to kind of start before everyone else is talking about the tricentennial and have a good three years to tell the history of New Orleans in these kind of bite-sized ways. Oh, man. So you will be doing this for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's the current plan, unless someone gets mad at someone else. (laughs) 
<laughs> but that's the plan. You know, the the show started. It launched in October of 2015, and the plan is for it to to go through 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, history stories are are challenging because they're not stories that are happening right now. So, what is your approach to to you know making them interesting? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, you realize all the people that you want to talk to in the story when I started doing Tripod, it's like they've been dead for 200 years. (laughs) So it's like, Uh, uh, I can't really call up, you know, Andrew Jackson (laughs) right now. Um, And so what's been a goal is to have the voices in each story be a balance of those that study and know and teach and think about this stuff and those that have some type of connection, whether it's like ancestral or, you know, people that live, you know, in an area that's being discussed and to be able to bring it to present day, which, you know, obviously gets easier and easier if we're talking about things, you know, coming into the the 20th century. Like we did a story about this integrated basketball game between these two high schools, a black private Catholic high school and and a white Catholic high school. And that happened in 1965. So for those stories, I have what really feels like the privilege of talking to people that were not only alive, but, you know, in this instance, played in that game and could really talk about it firsthand. It's the last practice of the season for the Jesuit high school basketball team. They're running in blue and white shirts up and down the court. We played it at the Jesuit gym and stuff right there on, on Carrollton Avenue. This is Harold Sylvester, remembering what it was like walking into that gym for the first and only time. There was a big disparity in facilities. Um, you know, we didn't have a gym. You know, we didn't have locker, we didn't have a shower. <laughs> you know, I mean, w- walking to that gym for the first time was like, wow, <laughs> what is this? Harold was a star of his team, but it wasn't Jesuit. He was a purple knight for St. Augustine High School, or St. Aug. And Harold was younger. He was a very, very good player as a sophomore, you know. That's Glenn Goodier, who did play for Jesuit. Glenn's now a partner at Jones Walker Law Firm and has been there practically since he graduated college. He's lived in New Orleans his whole life and grew up in the Bayou St. John neighborhood. On Taft Place, I uh, went to Holy Rosary Grammar School there. And, and then on to Jesuit, a private Catholic school. Harold St. Aug was private and Catholic, too, one of the only two black private schools in the city. I grew up in the, the adjacent Calliope Housing Project, which, you know, has become Benjamin C. Cooper Homes now. You know, so it was that kind of upbringing. So both guys were playing ball in 65, just when New Orleans private schools desegregated. But the city's high school sports leagues were still segregated. That's despite the NBA integrating several years before. So Jesuit didn't play St. Aug, but they were the two top teams in the city. Efforts to integrate the leagues, including lawsuits, had failed. You know, what I learned later on was that um, the, the president of Jesuit High School got together with the president or principal of St. Aug, and they wanted to show the Louisiana State High School Athletic Association that, you know, that black teams and white teams could play one another without there being any problems involved. The coaches worked behind the scenes to pair the two teams against each other. They decided on a secret match on Jesuit turf. But Harold says the motive wasn't explained to the players at the time. My memory is that we were just you know, in the locker room. Coach Nick Connor came in and said, we're going to play Jesuit. And the talk started. Uh, you know, we'd never seen any of the players, you know, but they sounded like gods. Uh, you know, I mean, the way they were written up in the newspaper. So we were going in to meet the guards wow. <laughs> and try to beat them. 
But then another one that was like that too was the um, about the Germans uh, sort of bringing gymnastics to New Orleans. You had people who were descendants of these folks. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that story because I found that 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 sort of tickled me to think that there was this German enclave and in New Orleans. And at first it was like, oh, isn't that cute? But then you're like, oh wait, they needed to have their own sort of enclave once World War One happened because it was unsafe. Totally. Totally. And that's what's really fun about this is that, you know, I am not going into it saying, hey, I'm the expert and now I'm going to tell you this. You know, it's really going into this being like, hey, I just found this out, too. Isn't this crazy? My name is Louis Meyer and my grandfather is Gustav Friedrich Meyer, who's one of the earlier members of the Turnverein. Grandpa Gustav was actually a gym teacher and gave lessons to other members at the Turnverein. He trained people in tumbling, free weights, fencing, and, wait for it, human pyramid. Uh, my father was a member of it. He was uh, with the pyramid, and he was the top of the pyramid. <laughs> this is Dorothea Dell. Her dad, Adolf Julius Fischer, was part of the human pyramid section of Gustav's Turnverein in the 1920s. And that actually is a rather dangerous position. <laughs> uh, he stated that he was the, the lightest and the most supple <laughs> and probably the most carefree. <laughs> so he never, like, made you and your family kind of create your own family pyramid? No. <laughs> No, no, no. As many immigrant groups do, you know, they, they found each other and, and could carry on certain traditions that they knew from the old country and all of that. But then, you know, like you said, World War One hits and it's like people don't know what to do about these Germans, some of them German-Americans, Americans, you know, flat out, who are being associated with things that are happening, you know, on the other side of the ocean. And so these people created these real kind of almost like benevolent organizations where they supported each other. And in this instance, the Germans were really into gymnastics. <laughs> so <laughs> they did all types of gymnastics together, and then they drank a lot of beer. I have to say, so one episode that I found, I was like, what, whoa, wait, what was the Maroon <laughs> episode? Oh, um, yes. I was really, really surprised when I heard that story. Um, and I think when I have that response that you just <laughs> described, that's when I know, okay, we need to go do that story. You live in a cave six feet underground. You're surrounded by wild animals, swarms of mosquitoes, thick mud, and you can only come out at night. Why? Beats being a slave. And, you know, they could live there, you know, for five, seven, ten years. This is Sylvian Juf, director of the Lapidus Center for the Historical Analysis of Transatlantic Slavery at the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem, New York. And that really is one of the best indictments against enslavement when you're ready to live in those conditions and have your children live in those conditions rather than be slaves. Sylvian is talking about maroons, which are runaway slaves, kind of. So most runaways in the United States actually run away to the cities and try to pass there as free. The maroons, on the other hand, were looking illegally for freedom, but in their own terms. They were establishing their families or their little group of their communities in areas that nobody had controlled over. 
If you've heard of Maroons, you've probably heard of Caribbean or South American groups. That's because there was no book on Maroons in America until Sylveon wrote one in 2014. There were thousands of Maroons at any given point from the earliest... What really was the kicker for me was, you know, the way that they hid was they dug these caves, you know, six to eight feet underground, uh, and they lived underground for years and years, and then they would come out at night. And, um, so you know, there were there were tables and chairs and beds and, and there were there was it was a, it was a home under under the ground. And so those are the types of things where, you know, we hear about runaway slaves, but we hear a pretty regurgitated the Fugitive Slave Act. And, mm-hmm. you know, when slaves were caught and slaves ran away to the north. But again, I didn't learn about Maroons in high school. And so that was another like, OK, let's do this. Kaplan Levinson is the host of Tripod, New Orleans at 300, from our pals at WWNO in the Big Easy. You can find out more about the show at biglisten.org. We're going to take another ever-so-tiny break right now, but when we come back, we'll hike to the Sierra Nevadas to learn what the new American West is all about. Gun shootouts, um, prospecting, a lot of lawlessness. Brothels. Uh, brothels. That's coming up so soon on The Big Listen. Stay tuned. This is NPR. Hey, how's it going? My name's Travis. I'm from Centerville, Virginia. And I love listening to Drunken Peasants and this four guys named TJ, his brother Scotty, other uh, friend Ben, and Paul's ego. Warning, the Drunken Peasants podcast is full of comedic exaggerations, independent thought, insensitivity, and other offensive content. We strongly urge all viewers and listeners to keep their brains and their skulls throughout the entire duration of this podcast. Failure to do so will result in immediate death. They comment on the news and such in a very comedic and vulgar way. Uh, their language, if you were to uh, have them on your show, would have to be bleeped a lot. Oh, f- you did. Sir, shit. At first, I at first I thought that the you had broken another mic, but then no, I realized you, you know you're... damn well that you disabled my microphone yeah, when I started yeah. talking about the dreaded subject, Scotty Wrestler. Anyways, again, check them out. They're called the Drunken Peasant. Thanks. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to know what's your number one show these days. Call us on the pod line and let us know about it. The number's 202-885-POD1. Seriously, you'll regret it if you don't, and I don't want you to feel that way. Okay, so normally this would be the part of the show called Listen Up, where we hear from podcasters about what they are putting their ears on these days. But we're on a road trip, and there's no cell service or Wi-Fi here. So we're going to keep on trucking past the mighty Mississippi and beyond the continental divide to Reno. Well, I like I didn't see deers out here. I like seeing the deers. They're the, they're very, like, close, uh, too. And the squirrels come up on you. been coming close up on this wagon to sniff it. I think they want food. They want food, yeah. Yeah. Range, Stories from the New American West, is a podcast hosted by Amy Westervelt and Julia Ritchie, two public radio veterans who are now based in the Reno-Lake Tahoe area. 
The show looks at how the region is evolving from a place of cow towns and desert brothels to high-tech hubs and modern-day pioneers. It really is an amazing car, I mean. Uh, how far can you go? Uh, 265 miles is the EPA rating. 265? Yeah. So, and then if you had to stop and charge, how long would it take you to charge? Um, well, they have, the, uh, they have a nationwide network of Tesla superchargers, like one in Truckee and, and Vacaville, if you want to go to San Francisco, and it's, right. it takes less than an hour. Oh, really? And, it, and it's free, too. And it's a full charge? Uh, yeah, and, it, and it's free. So you can travel from Los Angeles to New York for free, from oh, really? Whistler, Canada, down to San Diego, cool. from here to Texas eventually, here to Vegas eventually. Amy Westervelt and Julia Ritchie, hosts of Range. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So tell me, what is Range in your estimation? How do you guys define your show? This is Amy, and I would say that we we kind of talk about it as being of the West, but not just for the West. So we kind mm-hmm. of focus on, on what we see as the sort of do-it-yourself go out, make your fortune kind of attitude of both the Old West and what we see as like the New West, the sort of like techie prospector thing. And those are sort of the stories that that we like to tell. Yeah, I, I was going to use the food hub example as the intersectionality between like doomsday preppers and off the grid sort of uh, people with, uh, you know, creating a business around that and, and distributing food around Lake Tahoe um, to make growing food year round plausible and economically feasible yeah. for businesses. So sort of finding the, the way in which like the Old West and the New West meet. <laughs> growing dome of this size is probably going to feed a family of eight. So, you know, if you had two or two or three small families, you know, this could produce quite a bit of food. So when I first moved to Truckee, California, I saw these green Tahoe Food Hub stickers everywhere. They are on like every single cafe, restaurant, grocery store, building in town. And that got me kind of curious. So I looked them up online. And then I saw they had this whole mission around building food security, which includes this giant dome where they grow food year round. What do you mean by dome? Is that like a greenhouse? Kind of. It's this geodesic dome that's been specially engineered to both regulate temperatures and deal with large snow loads. Here's what really struck me, though. All that language about resilience and food security, it kind of reminds me of how doomsday preppers talk about readying themselves for the end of days. <laughs> You're right. They're very concerned about making sure they have their own food source, even if it's like 100 jars of pinto beans or something in a bunker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I sort of love that in a lot of ways, local food advocates and doomsday preppers speak the same language and are tackling some of the same issues, but coming from polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. Totally. Anyhow, that's what I was thinking about when Susie met me in a parking lot in Truckee a few weeks ago. She let me ride along in her delivery truck as she picked up orders from farmers. One of the episodes I I was thinking of when you were talking about this sort of melding of of old and new west was the episode you did about the guy who owns the Mustang Ranch. Yeah, definitely. I think he was probably, we had like this hit list of people we wanted to talk to that we thought kind of embodied what we thought the show would, would really be about. And he was definitely on the top of that list. You know, his name's Lance Gilman, and he's just he's very well known in this part of the country um, because he is one of the largest real estate developers here. And he is developing one of the largest uh, industrial parks in the country. And, yeah, it happens to be in this dusty little part of Nevada uh, where he owns the, you know, the county's only um, brothel <laughs> and a number of other things as well. He's definitely like the embodiment of the West right now. 
Although he's had his hand in some of the largest land deals in northern Nevada in the last decade, most people are more familiar with him as the owner of the brothel, the Mustang Ranch. He's also a county commissioner in Story County, Nevada, population 4,010, where he now owns more than 60% of the land. That's right, he owns more than half of the land in the county. He's the kind of larger-than-life character who, when you read about in articles, as a journalist, you just really want to interview, which is exactly what we did. But before we learn how Gilman got to be king of this small pocket of the West, a little background on Story County. Julia, could you cue up some appropriately plinky music for me? Sure thing. Although it doesn't look like it today, Story County, believe it or not, was once the epicenter of the mining bonanza in the mid-19th century. Ten years after the California gold rush, the discovery of a huge silver ore deposit called the Comstock Lode sparked a silver rush to the area. The county seat, Virginia City, sprung up virtually overnight as people flocked to the area in hopes of profiting from the mineral deposits or, at the very least, from the miners who worked there. At its peak, Virginia City boasted a population of 25,000 people. But as with most mining stories, this boom soon went bust. By the late 19th century, stories' fortunes began to wane as the mines were picked clean. And by 1960, most everyone had moved on. In fact, Story County makes sort of the perfect place for someone like Gilman. Not unlike the restless miners of yore, he says he was used to moving around a lot as a kid. So I was born in Southern California as the son of a, a federal law enforcement officer. And uh, so You are broadcasting from the Reno, Tahoe area. Like, what do you think that we don't know or America doesn't know about that part of the country? Oh, God, a lot. Like, a whole lot. Um, I grew up in California. This is Amy. I grew up in California and have always lived on the West Coast. And every time I go and visit friends in New York or D.C. or whatever, they have a lot of just ideas about the West that are totally bonkers to me. <laughs> like, you know, um, I think people tend to think of the West as either – cowboy country or like, you know, California surf kind of thing or super high tech like Silicon Valley douchebags. And it's really not either of those things. Um, I feel like it's it's a real big mix of of all of that. Um, and underlying it all is kind of this just consistent stream of like individualism that I think to me is like what really makes the West kind of unique from the rest of the country. When we were mm. talking about launching this. I had just moved out last summer from the East Coast. So I had all of those preconceptions and <laughs> stereotypes about the West. And I had seen Reno 911, uh, which is, you know, which is funny because it wasn't even filmed in Reno. Um, but, you know, the so shorts are real. Got yeah, us a little speeder. Well, Constable, why don't you just sit tight right here? We're going to show you how we do things in Reno, Nevada. Yeah, and and so it's that I think when I we, when we were talking about you know doing the show, I was like, it's cool because I've learned so much, right? I'm a newcomer out here, and I'm finding this healthy blend of old and new, and great ideas that people are having and launching businesses every day in this region. Um, and so I, I I think that was a real catalyst for us is like, hey, you know, I I see the the difference out here, and I see I feel different. Yeah. I mean, the reason why it's different is because we sadly do not have a national cowboy poetry gathering on the East Coast. Right. 
That is very sad. It's a damn shame. (laughs) (laughs) Homesteading's a challenge, it's fair to say. Things go wrong most any old day. The work is varied, often different than planned. You're always solving problems and working with your hands. I arose one morning with a task to begin. That new chain on the chainsaw. Thought I'd give it a spin and take down the old... For all the new things that are are happening in, in the new American West, you still have cowboy culture, right? Yeah. I mean, you still have that sort of old cultural component. Totally. Yeah. It's very, it's very, especially in this part of the West, I think it's still very prevalent. Like, I mean, in Reno, you can carry a weapon and an open container of liquor and walk down the street. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's just there's a lot of things about this region that I think, I don't know, I feel like whenever I talk to people in the rest of the country, they're like, wait, what? You can do what? (laughs) Right. You know, like prostitution is legal in, in Nevada. That's, you know. That's an unusual thing, too. And I think part of what makes it so different, which we haven't talked about, is the geography. So 90% of Nevada is publicly owned land. So you drive an hour outside of Reno in any direction, and you are immediately in the middle of nowhere. The further out from the radius of any of the urban areas that you get, the closer to cowboy country you get. And so you mentioned the Elko Cowboy Poetry Gathering. That's about four hours east of Reno. And it is definitely still very traditional West. But then like in the middle of that is like Tesla charging stations, you know, which Mm -hmm. is it's like the weird that's kind of the weird intersection that that we find interesting. Amy Westervelt and Julia Ritchie are the hosts of Range Stories from the New American West, which is a collaboration with High Country News. To find out more about their show, check out biglisten.org. It has all the info. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Don't be sad. But before we let you go, it's time for... Chartography. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts. We're not looking at number one or even number 100. We are looking at number 289, which is high up there, but... In a sea of tens of thousands of podcasts, trust when I tell you, it's pretty good. So this week's 289 is called The Rich Roll Podcast. Which is not to be confused with Rick Rolling. That's something totally, totally different. Okay, so this is a podcast from a guy named literally Rich Roll. I'm Rich Roll. This is my podcast. So from the cover art, Rich Roll is like a rugged 40-something dude with like shoulder-length brown hair, and he's sitting in the back of an old white pickup truck that is full of kale. Okay. Um, so that's Rich Roll. Uh, Rick Roll. Wait. Rich. <laughs> Sorry. Rich Rich Roll. So his podcast is all about getting intimate with change makers. I get intimate and go long form. To help you, the listener, unlock and unleash your most authentic So on the episode that I listened to, he has a man on the show named Andrew Spudfit Taylor, who is an Australian man who weighed 334 pounds before he went on a diet of all potatoes. Nothing but 
potatoes. He literally ate only potatoes. Let that sink in for a minute. And so Rich Roll has him on the podcast and he talks about his minimalist approach to diet. I want my food to be boring and bland. So anyway, apparently this guy, I mean, I'm not, I shouldn't laugh at this really, but apparently this guy lost 114 pounds and he is no longer depressed or on medication and uh, he's lighter and it's all because of potatoes. So that's what I learned from the Ritual podcast. Ritual, ultra athlete, wellness evangelist, best-selling author. Would you believe me if I told you this podcast, this very thing that you're listening to right now, you could get delivered to you every single week without you lifting a finger? Well, you should believe me because it is the truth. You can go to iTunes or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and subscribe and it'll come right to you magically. Big listen on your device. So do it. As always, we love us some listener feedback. Follow us on Facebook or check us out on our super fun Twitter feed at Hear Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. You can also tap out a little email love note to us. Our address is biglisten at wamu.org. Also, in case you forgot, I'm still accepting handwritten letters. So get those stamps ready. Do you want even more Big Listen coming at you on a weekly basis? Well, then subscribe to our newsletter. It's got all of the details about the show, plus some little extra nuggets for fun. So just go to biglisten.org and hit sign up for our newsletter. The show was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston. I, Lauren Ober, was driving home for the holiday. Special thanks to number one turkey carver, Beck Feldhaus Adams, for helping out. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a final thought from our traveling pal, Nicole Washington, about the sweet, sweet marriage of podcasts and road trips. Why are podcasts a good companion for you when you're when you're road tripping, when you're heading out of town? Uh, I don't really laugh a lot when I listen to music. I mean, sometimes I'll listen to music and like sing really loud to keep myself awake, but with the podcast, it's nice because they're engaging, and so I'm thinking about what they're saying, and I'm laughing, and it's just like, I feel like I'm more alert, and it makes the time go by faster. Well, wherever you're traveling this Thanksgiving, we wish you journey mercies. Buckle your seatbelt, and don't text and drive. Till next time, keep listening, America. All right. All right, we'll see ya. Bye. Bye. This is NPR. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. All right, listen, since you're still here, at the next rest stop, I want you to pull over and tap us out a little review. It would mean a lot to us if I've said it a million bajillion times, your reviews matter. So leave us a review. Be safe about it. I'm going to go now.